right. Good morning, everybody. You have your Bible with you this morning? Yeah, 2 Kings chapter 6 is where you need to go. Uh, find a Bible. Uh, bring a Bible next week if you didn't bring one this week so we can follow along as we study God's Word together. Over the last couple of weeks, we have been engaging the epic story of Elisha and Naaman. I've told you a few times that there is much more going on here than the mere healing of a leper. What we have seen in the text is the conversion of this pagan enemy general named Naaman. He has, in the process of all of this, come to faith in the one true and living God, Yahweh. And he is headed back to his home in Syria with the intention of worshiping and obeying the Lord. Last week in the text, we celebrated the grace of God that is on display in the conversion of Naaman by specifically observing his post-conversion experience. Remember, I told you that, that when you give your testimony or write your testimony, there are three parts. So three parts of your story. Number one, your pre-conversion experience, what your life was like before you met Jesus. Number two, your conversion experience, what was it like when you came to meet Jesus. And three, your post-conversion experience, what is life like uh, now, how has life changed since you met Jesus? Well, we saw the first two of those things a couple of weeks ago, and then last week we saw his post-conversion experience, and it was glorious. Like, it's, it's messy. He doesn't have it all just right. He doesn't have all of his ducks in a row, but he has a, a real heartfelt intention to worship the Lord and serve him and offer sacrifices and obey him. And then, in contrast to that new life we saw in Naaman, we saw this tragic postscript to the text where Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, chased Naaman down and selfishly manipulated him into giving him some silver and some clothes in order to make himself rich to line his own pockets. It was this ugly scene where the insider is put out. Um, he, he, he's pro he proves that he's not a faithful follower of the Lord and is punished as a result. And we tried to tie all of this together at the end with a text from Romans chapter 11 that I think will be on the screen that says, Behold, behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. I'm going to emphasize that cut off right now because that's going to come up again later in the text uh, today. So Naaman is a demonstration of the kindness of God. Behold the outsider who is brought in. And it teaches us that there is hope for all kinds of people. If even this pagan enemy general can be brought in, if God is pursuing even guys like Naaman, he is certainly pursuing guys like us, guys and gals like us to redeem. He is pursuing all kinds of people all over the world to bring in, to redeem, to make part of his family. But we also saw the severity of God in Gehazi, who is the insider who's put out, Behold the severity of God. And we learned from him this warning that needs to be delivered to the church that would say that we must not bank on our proximity to the word and the work of God for our salvation. If your life, despite your attendance at church, despite your participation, despite your giving or your Bible reading or anything like that, if your life is marked by fleshliness and worldliness like Gehazi's was, it is likely that you don't know God. 
And then at the end of the day, I said, there's good news for all kinds of people, whether you're the insider or the outsider. The, the, the key to life, the key to hope is repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance from your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how insiders are brought in. That's how outsiders are brought in. That's where life comes from. So I invited you last week, as always, to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this week we're going to engage a very short but very interesting story that follows this epic account of Elisha and Naaman and Gehazi. Over the last couple of weeks, the challenge for uh, me as the preacher has been, how do do I get all of this into one sermon? How do do I I condense all of what we're seeing here into one 30, 40, 50 minute uh, sermon? Uh, The the trouble this week is, is there enough in these seven verses to stretch um, into 30, 40, 50 minutes And the answer is yes. Uh, I'll just let you in on it. The answer is yes. This is not going to be a 10-minute talk today. Uh, There's a ton of cool stuff going on in this short text. As we engage this strange scene, we want to constantly be asking ourselves, why is this here? Why did the author tell us this story at all? And why did he tell us this story here in the broader scheme of things? Those are important questions to ask anytime we're studying the Bible, especially when we're studying sections of biblical narrative especially when we're seeing these unfolding of events like we see in 2 Kings or like we see in the Gospels or like we see in Genesis or Exodus. We've got to constantly be asking ourselves, why is this here? Why is this particular story in this particular place? And we want to get the answer right. This story that we're going to look at today is here to reveal to us who God is. It's not just about superficial, practical lessons for us like don't be in debt or be careful with stuff that you borrow, or you can get more work done together than you can get done by yourself. All of those lessons are valid in this text, and all of those lessons are helpful from this text. But we must be asking, surely there's more than this. Surely there's more. What does this text teach us about God? What do we, how do we see Jesus in this text? Those are the questions we want to be asking so that we don't spend all of our time merely scratching the surface of superficial practical applications and miss out on a real encounter with God in the text. So we're going to try to do that today. But before we go on uh, and read the text together, I I just want to tell you that this is a great story to story. We haven't talked about that in a while here, um, but but we have in the past talked about this, the idea of, of Bible storying, about how it's a good way to communicate the truths of God's word to your neighbors and friends who might not be willing to sit down for 40 minutes and listen to a sermon. Uh, And they might not be willing to invest two months in studying through a book with you. But almost everybody you know will listen to you tell a story. In fact, you can easily say to all of your friends this week, hey, I want to tell you a story from God's Word. Can I tell you a quick story from God's Word? And then you, you talk them through 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and the story of this floating axe. And then you ask five questions. Five questions are the key to storying like this. Number one, what do you like about this story? Number two, what do you not like about this story? So what, what, what jives with you and what doesn't jive with you? What do you like to hear? What do you not like to hear? Number three, what do you learn about God from this story? That may, be the, that may be the most important question. What do you learn about God from this story? Number four, what do you learn about man from this story? And number five, how does this story change your life? What are you going to do about it? And you can do that with this story this week. This is, this is an excellent story to story. <laughs> 
right? All right, let's read it together. 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 1-7. through 7. This may be a story that you've never heard before. It says, Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, Behold now, the place before you where we are living is too limited for us. Please let us go to the Jordan, and each of us take from there a beam, and let us make a place there for ourselves where we may live. So he said, Go. Then one said, Please be willing to go with your servants. And he answered, I shall go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one of them was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, for it was borrowed. The man of God said, Where did it fall? And when he had showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. He said, Take it up for yourself. So he put out his hand and took it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it is good for us to be here today with our brothers and sisters in your presence. It is good in the midst of chaos and confusion and uncertainty to come before you and find peace and help and grace in our time of need. Thank you for gathering us together and thank you for meeting with us here this morning. And we do want to see you. That's how we started the day. We want to see you today in this text. So we ask that you would show yourself to us and that you would open our eyes that we may see. And we want to hear from you today. So we ask that you would speak with power and authority to us and that you would open our ears that we may hear. We want to be changed forever today by an encounter with you. So we pray that you would meet with us and change us by your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we'll just walk through these seven verses and see some really interesting stuff. Verse 1. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, Behold now, the place before you where we are living is too limited for us. I think it's interesting to observe the growth of the sons of the prophets as we observe them here in 2 Kings. They are growing spiritually. When we first met them, they were kind of this band that, that there was a little bit of tension between them and Elisha. Uh, they didn't seem to be uh, exactly meshing well. There seemed to be some friction. But now, as we've observed them for the last few weeks, we see them growing spiritually. We see them sitting at Elisha's feet. We see them eager to learn. We see them eager to walk alongside him as his disciples. Even in this text today, uh, they, they like, we, we want you to go with us. We don't want to just go off to the Jordan and build a place on our own. We want you to go with us. They, they are enjoying being the disciples of Elisha. But they are not just growing spiritually. They are also growing numerically. They're growing in number, which is absolutely astonishing in light of the wholesale rebellion that is going on in Israel during this period. One of the things we know about Israel as a whole during this time is that they are giving themselves more and more to the worship of Baal, more and more to idolatry, more and more to blasphemy, more and more to the, the ways of the world around them, and less and less to the faithful worship of Yahweh, less and less to faithful obedience unto the Lord. And so in that broader context, it's really interesting that there is this pocket of faithfulness that seems to be growing within the larger scheme of unfaithfulness. And, and that should be encouraging to us because we live in a day and age that is similar to that, right? 
wholesale, there is less and less faithfulness to Jesus all around us. But that doesn't mean that in the midst of that, there can't be a pocket of faithfulness that is growing, a pocket of obedience that is growing, a pocket that is the church within a city that is growing despite the decay all around us. We want to be like that. We want to be encouraged by the growth of the sons of the prophets. Uh, Elisha is regularly encouraged by them and their presence in a way that Elijah was not. If you remember, Elijah on his darkest day said, I'm the only one left. In fact, in 1 Kings 19, that seems to be his refrain. And I, I alone am left. I, I alone am left. He just keeps saying that when the reality is, no, it's not the case. There are other faithful ones. He just didn't know it. Well, Elisha knows it because he's regularly engaged with these other faithful ones. And that keeps the prophet Elisha on the right track. Now, there's an interesting thing going on in the original language in the word that is translated as too limited. When they say the place where we are now living is too limited for us. Cooper Thompson has been a huge help this summer as he's been here as one of our summer apprentices because he has just come out of of, uh, undergraduate studies of biblical languages in, in large part. And he's a big fan of Hebrew. Uh, He's a big fan of Old Testament language, and so he's been super helpful in giving us some insight into specific words. So what's going on when they say this place is too limited for us? It may be that the only issue that they are indicating is that they are outgrowing the place where they are staying and simply need to expand. It, It may be on one level that there's just too many of them to occupy the space they're in, and they just need a bigger place. But Cooper helped us see that it may also be that they are in a little bit of distress or more than a little bit of distress because of their present location's proximity to the Syrian border. You see, the word that is behind uh, it is too limited communicates and hints at the idea of distress. And if you read on ahead a little bit, you will see that tensions between Israel and Syria are escalating to the point that Syria is going to invade pretty soon. And the specific word that's used here as too limited is used to communicate that they are feeling some pressure and they have a desire to move away from their present location further inland toward the Jordan River to to put some distance between them and Syria perhaps. So, So bottom line is this, if they just needed a bigger house, if the only issue was, hey, Elisha, we need a bigger house, surely their plan would have been, let's add on to the house where we're at. But that is not at all what they ask for. They say, ooh, this place is too limited for us. It's too small, and there's some distress involved in that. And so they're asking to go to a whole new place and build a whole new house. Does that make some sense? So there may be a little more going on here than meets the eye on the surface when it comes to our English translation. They uh, want to get away from the tension with Syria. Now, in their request to go and build a new place, a bigger place, a better place, there are some Bible scholars that cast the sons of the prophets in a bad light because of this, as if they are just looking for comfort or luxury or something like that. They basically accuse them of just wanting a bigger house and a shinier car and stuff like that. Well, there are several reasons why I disagree with those scholars and have confidence that the request of the sons of the prophets here is both noble and godly. Their request is really a good thing. Number one, most notably, we know that because Elisha grants them their request. 
if they were selfishly motivated, if it was sinful that they wanted a new place, surely Elisha would have said, no. But what does he say? Go. <laughs> he like unequivocally says, go. Let's, let's go do that. Secondly, they want to do the work themselves. These guys are not saying to Elisha, hey, get some servants, get some slaves for us, get some resources for us, and build us a big place that we can move into so that we can be lazy and happy. No, they say, we want to go, we want to do the harvesting of the logs, we want to build the house, they're in it themselves, and they're going to use basic materials. They're going to build a humble abode. Think, think log cabin, in fact, specifically log cabin seems to be what they're trying to build here, rather than marble mansion. They're saying, let's go cut down some logs and build a humble abode rather than a big place. So I think they're on the right track here. I say all that to say, sons of the prophets are getting better and better as, as we move on. They seem to be more and more faithful as we move on. And look how it develops in verse 2. They say, please let us go to the Jordan and each of us take from there a beam and let us make a place there for ourselves that we may live. And so he said, go. There are a couple of things that I want to point out here that lead us to some of those superficial applications that I mentioned earlier. Like if you just camp out here, you can learn some practical life lessons. Notice that they all intend to do the work themselves. They don't ask Elisha to recruit slaves to work for them. They intend for each son of the prophets to pull his own weight. And so we could learn some lessons here about humility, right? We could say we need to be humble like this and, and do our own work. We could learn some lessons about teamwork here. We could say, hey, we can get more done together than we possibly could on our own. Notice also in this text that they ask for permission. You may recall uh, a while back that one of these sons of the prophets went off and did his own thing without asking, just kind of just went out and did his own thing and brought back that thing that he found, and the result was tragic. You remember the whole story about, whoa, there is death in the pot? Remember that? The stew? The poison stew? Well, that was because one of the sons of the prophets didn't tell anyone and just went out and collected some gourds, chopped them up, threw them in the pot. He didn't ask for any direction, but here we see they run it by the leader. They are therefore submitting to his wisdom and his direction. That's a practical application of the text. It is wise to ask permission. If you're in a subordinate role, it's wise to ask the boss if you can do a thing. And they do that. Notice also here that Elisha simply tells them to go. His, his response to their kind of elaborate and, and detailed question is so simple. He just says, go. He just directs them to go and do it. He doesn't give them a big speech. He doesn't give them a giant response. He just says, go. And I love what Arthur Pink does with this text when he points out the humility of Elisha's leadership by his response. Look at what Pink says. This is long, but it's gold. Pink says, we may learn something more from his answer, go ye. It gives us a sidelight on the prophet's own character manifesting as it does his humility. He at once perceived the reasonableness of their request and concurred with them therein. A proud and haughty man would quickly resent any suggestion coming from those under his charge or care. Thus, an important practical lesson is here taught. Superiors ought not to consider themselves above receiving and weighing ideas from their underlings, and when discerning the wisdom of the same and recognizing they could be carted out to advantage, they should not hesitate to adopt them. He goes on and says, It is the mark of a little mind, 
and not of a great one, which considers it has a monopoly of intelligence and is independent of help from others. Many a man has paid dearly for disdaining the counsel of his wife or his employees. Like if you got lost in the rest of that, you, you got it at the end, right? Many a man has paid dearly for disdaining the counsel of his wife or employees. Elisha, if he was a proud man, would have said, I don't like that idea. I don't like the idea of you going to the Jordan I don't, it, because it wasn't my idea. But rather he says, great, go. And look at how it develops. Verse 3, one of them said, please be willing to go with your servants. And he answered, I shall go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. Now, I don't have a whole lot to say about this, but I really like this part. I feel like these guys are on the right track. They're on a good trajectory, as opposed to Gehazi last week, who seems like he's on the downward trajectory. He, he seemed to be faithful early and now is less faithful. In fact, now has been put out as a leper. Uh, these guys seem to be growing in their faithfulness and walking with Elisha in fellowship. They want to spend time with their teacher, and he wants to spend time with them. I see here a good sense of fellowship between these brothers. It's a pretty ideal scene. The prophet and the sons of the prophets off to establish a new seminary on the banks of the Jordan. Don't you love it? And then it says, but. Right? We're, we're, we're just tracking along really good. And the first word of verse 5 is, but. As one was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water, and he cried out and said, Alas, my master, for it was borrowed. We have a problem. And this problem is much bigger than we tend to think it would be. Today, if this happened with us, if we were chopping down some trees and one of you lost an axe head in the river, uh, if, that, if I was the guy, I would say, hey, let's go to Walmart and I've got 40 bucks and we'll get you a new axe. Or, or, or maybe even I would pull out my phone and get on Amazon right then and, and, and order you a new $40 axe that will be delivered to your doorstep in two days. Amazon Prime, right? Like that's how we would take care of it today. No big deal. But in ancient Israel, it was another problem. I read some stuff about how this time period fits in with the timeline of the early Iron Age and how Israel was kind of behind the times when it came to the Iron Age. And so axes, bottom line is, axes were not easy to find. And if you had one, it was extremely valuable. If you had an iron axe, it was hard to find and it was extremely valuable. So this is not like the man lost a $40 tool that belonged to one of his friends or neighbors. It would be more like he wrecked his Mercedes. More like he borrowed the Mercedes from his neighbor and wrecked it. This is a big deal. He's created a massive problem for himself and he is upset about it. Do you catch what happens? Imagine the scene. The thing flies off into the Jordan River and he is crying out to Elisha my master it was borrowed he is absolutely upset because not only does he know the value of what he has lost he knows that he is responsible to whomever he borrowed it from and he is a man of integrity he's a man of integrity and makes no attempt to cover it up he's not like Gehazi what would Gehazi do he'd be like no one heard that, right? Look around, make sure nobody saw it. Maybe try to hide the whole matter. That's what he did last week, right? With his own sinfulness. This is an accident. He wasn't trying, this guy wasn't trying to lose the axe head. It was a mere accident, and he immediately owns it. 
He immediately owns what has gone on. He is a man of integrity who makes no attempt to cover it up. What I want you to see here is that this guy has a massive problem. Massive problem. And he can't do anything about it. He cannot fix it. So what does he do? Well, look at it in the text. He turns to Elisha, which we have seen all throughout our study of the life and ministry of Elisha. That's basically the way people would turn to the Lord in their time of need. He cries out to Elisha in desperation. He turns to the Lord and says, my master, it was borrowed. Look at verse 6. Then the man of God said, where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. I love in this verse the gentleness and compassion of Elisha. Gentleness and compassion is not necessarily something we saw very often in Elijah, right? Elijah wasn't gentle. He wasn't patient. He didn't seem to be the guy that you would want to spend a lot of time with, maybe. Um, but here, and in several other places, we learn that Elisha was a gentleman. He was patient, and he's patient with this guy. And I want to learn from Elisha's example. Rather than rebuke this man, rather than create distance, rather than say, you're on your own, kid. Tough luck, or something like that. What does he say? He says, where did it fall? Where did it fall? And I want you to see that that implies that he's going to do something about it. This is a very hopeful statement when he says, where did it fall? And if you haven't picked up on this yet, I think this story is really a gospel story. I, I think this story is ultimately a little story that points us to the big story of the gospel. Like notice that this man has a problem that he cannot fix. So what does he do? He turns to the Lord. And the Lord does what that man cannot do and brings about restoration by his miraculous grace. That sounds like the gospel to me, doesn't it to you? And part of why I'm convinced that this is what the author intends for us to see is the word he used to describe cutting off the stick. Like it seems like the operative thing that creates, that creates the floating iron is this stick. Ultimately, of course, it is the power of God, but it is this stick that is used to, uh, as means toward that end. And the word that is used for cut off is super interesting. There are words in Hebrew that are used to describe the basic idea of removing one part of something from a larger thing. Like if you were just using a norm, the normal language of cutting off, uh, there's, a, there's a word for that um, that would just like, yeah, you just cut off a stick. But the word that is used here is loaded. It is, it is a loaded and heavy word. It's the same word to use that is used to describe what happens to an Israelite who is unfaithful to the Lord and to his covenant. He is cut off from the Lord. He is cut off from the people of God, he is cut off from the camp, he is cut off from worship. Because of his sin, he is cut off. That's the word that's used here to describe what Elisha does with the stick. It is cut off. So track with me here. This limb, which did not sin, is cut off and is the thing that will bring about the restoration and bring the axe back from the deep. I want you to see that that's Jesus in a lot of ways. Jesus who did not sin and yet was cut off for us that we might be brought in and given life. Catch that? Like that word is a specific word that's used there that makes us think about all these things. Look at 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. To talk about Jesus being cut off so that we could be restored. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Right? Jesus knew no sin, but the Father made him to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So when he took our sin, he was cut off. He was cut off so that we might be brought in. It was by the cutting off of Jesus when our sin was credited to his account that we are brought in. Uh, the text that, that uh, Crank read earlier in Galatians chapter 3 also makes this clear. It says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. A curse, the thing that is cut off and put out. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. I want you to see here that this limb is a picture of Jesus. The one who is cut off and thrown in so that there might be restoration. And look, Elisha threw the cut off stick in and the King James Version says, and the axe head did swim. It did swim. The iron floated. They can't do that. That doesn't happen, right? You, have you ever seen an iron axe head floating down the river? Have you ever seen it swim? But that's what happened. And this is a miracle that is only brought, a, brought about by the grace of God. And the parallel to the gospel story is that the one who is dead in his trespasses and sins cannot live. Unless Jesus shows up and makes him live. Like your new life in Christ is as unlikely as a floating axe. And yet you live by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the good news. Christ died for sinners. Christ was cut off for sinners so that we might live. Look at verse 7. Then he said, take it up for yourself. So he put out his hand and took it. I love this. I love this just from a storying perspective. It seems like the guy is just standing there, like amazed at what has just happened. What did I just see? He just cut off a stick and threw it in, and now the axe that I lost is floating. He seems to stand there in amazement, and Elisha has to tell him to pick it up. Most people would have dove into the water, right, to, to grab the thing. But he is standing there in absolute amazement, and Elisha has to tell him to pick it up. I think we see a lot in this. Number one, we see the response of faith that is necessary in receiving the gift of God. The response of faith, like he, he, he's got to get it. He made it float. Now it's for him to take, receive by faith, and that is demonstrated in action. I think also we see a sense of awe and wonder that is necessary when we receive the grace of God in our lives. Like we don't want to be the ones who just snatch it and run away. 
We want to be, we want to be like that one leper in the story you read last week, right? We want to be like that one leper in the story of Jesus cleansing the ten, the ten lepers. Ten of them just took their, their healing and went on. They just, they just took the grace and ran with it. I want to be like that one who stands in awe and amazement and says, Oh, thank you. Thank you for this good gift that you have given. That seems to be the son of the prophet that is going on here. He seems to have a sense of awe and wonder, not just smash and grab when it comes to the grace of God. And we want to receive God's grace like that in our lives as well. So when we talk about application of this text today, I want to think about it in three levels. The superficial lessons that we have to learn, the deep gospel lessons that we have to learn, and then I think there are some, like, I'll call them mid-level lessons that we have to learn here. So let's first talk about the superficial lessons. We could do this, and we could just hang out here. We could talk about how we need to be careful with stuff that we borrow, how we need to be careful when we're swinging an axe, how we, <coughs> how we need to learn to work together, and if we do, we will get more accomplished than we could on our own. Like, those are superficial applications. They're all good. They're all helpful. But then there's some mid-level applications, like the importance of fellowship and partnership in discipleship. We could really spend some time camping out on Elisha and the sons of the prophets walking together to the Jordan. We could spend some time uh, about how they want to live together, how they, how they sit at his feet and learn from him, how they seem to really be sharing life, and that's where growth comes from. That'd be good to talk about those things, right? We need some of that, which is why we gather together like this. We could say that God is concerned for even the smaller needs of our lives. Like he is willing to, to engage his miraculous supernatural power to restore something as simple as an axe. He is not unconcerned about your small needs. In fact, we're going to sing a song in a little while that makes that point really well. He is not unconcerned about your smaller needs. We could talk about that. We could talk in the mid-level about patience and compassion toward those around you. Like when an accident happens, ah, I really want to learn this lesson. When an accident happens, when my kid loses the axe head, man, I want to respond like Elisha and not like I usually do. What is wrong with you? What were you thinking? I want to learn something of the gentleness and compassion of Elisha. I need more of that in my life. So we could camp out there and even make these mid-level, like, uh, real, really more spiritual applications that are deeper and important. But man, if we stay there, we've missed out on the big gospel lessons. And this is really where we want to camp out. We want to see in this story that we have a problem that we cannot solve. And that problem is sin. Our sin and the holiness of God creates distance and enmity and judgment and wrath. We've got, and we can't do anything about it. There is a chasm between natural man apart from Christ and holy God. There is a great divide between the two. And there is no way the natural man can cross that divide. He can't do anything about it. We've got to, we can't do anything about that problem any more than the man could make the axe float. We have a problem that we cannot solve. And Jesus was cut off so that that problem could be solved. Jesus was cut off and thrown in so that we might live. He came and took our sin and took the punishment, the cutting off that we deserve so that we might be brought in. He was put out so that we could be brought in. He was made to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He was cursed so that we might be blessed. 
Jesus was cut off so that we might live, and only he can make the dead to live. That's why we sing, Jesus, only Jesus. Who can make the blind to see? Who can make a dead man live? Jesus, only Jesus, right? He can make the iron swim, and he can bring life to a dead man. And maybe the last big kind of gospel deep thing is reach out and take it. I want, I want to stand here. I want to stand here like Elisha and say, he, he has made the axe head float. Reach out and take it. Repent and believe. And receive the restoration that God has purchased through the death, burial, and resurrection of his own son. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. Receive that life that only he can give. Let's stand together and pray. Father, help us to see all that you want us to see in this text. Help us to learn the superficial lessons that are extremely practical and and implemented easily into our lives. Help us to see those things and respond to them in faith and obedience. Help us to see the mid-level spiritual lessons in this text, to live life in fellowship and discipleship, to be patient and compassionate toward people around us. But, oh, Father, if you open our eyes to anything, open our eyes to the gospel, to the problem that we have that we cannot solve, to the cutting off of Jesus so that we might live, the power of you, of, of you and you alone to raise the dead, to bring dead men to life. And, God, I pray that you give faith, that you give repentance, that men and women and boys and girls would reach out and take, reach out and take it up, that they would repent and believe and be forever changed by your grace through faith in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.